Welcome to Bible Worm. We're on hiatus until September 2021, but this summer we're replaying our 2020 series on the Hebrew Festival Scrolls. This week, enjoy our episode on Song of Songs 1 and 7 from June 28, 2020. Happy listening and see you in September. Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Hello and welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. I'm joined this and every week by my friend and colleague, Dr. Amy Robertson, biblical scholar and director of lifelong learning at Congregation Orchadash in Atlanta. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text both as scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week we continue our summer series on the forgotten books of the Bible, turning our attention to Song of Songs 1.12-2.6 and 7.1-13. We wonder at the presence of erotic love poetry in the biblical canon and wrestle with what it means for our understandings of bodies, sexuality, and God. We explore themes of sexual empowerment, invitation and consent, and the joy of sex. We think about how the song invites us to admire and respect human bodies, challenging a culture that alternately shames and sexualizes bodies for profit. Mostly, we consider how this ancient text, set free in our churches and synagogues, might empower us to speak more authentically about human sexuality. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you today? I'm doing just fine. How are you, Bobby? <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm glad to hear. I'm glad to hear it. We're, um, we're heading <laughs> into I'm... the Song of Songs today. We are getting into the Song of Songs, yeah. Which is a whole new world of imagery and things to talk about. Yeah, we, we haven't read erotica before on Bible Worm. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is <laughs> Bible Worm erotica edition. Yeah. Wormy, wormy erotica. So here's what I'll say. I, I actually, I agree. There's a lot of baggage to the word erotica, so we don't have to use that word. But this is the, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bibles, really like the only exploration of what I would call like embodied love, like yeah. human embodied love. Yeah. It's a series of poems that are mostly spoken by two lovers. Sometimes there's other voices thrown in there. Yeah. The woman speaks more than the man. Yeah, it's pretty rare to have, have female voices kind of at the forefront in the biblical text. The last thing I'll say, I think the last thing, is that it's pretty silent on the central theological and historical themes that occupy most of the biblical text. Like, there's the whole biblical story happening over on the left, and then there's this happening on the right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it should come as a surprise to nobody. <laughs> That religious leaders have been eager to read this text as an allegory, yeah. putting either God and Israel or God and the individual in the roles of the two lovers in this story. Right. And in the Christian um, tradition, it becomes Jesus and the church, mm -hmm, sometimes the Jesus Holy Spirit and the, and the human soul. Mm -hmm. But those are all allegorical readings. If we, read it, if we read it in its most straightforward sense, this is about embodied human love. That's right. That's so interesting to me. And one of the things that sometimes surprises people when I talk to them about Song of Songs is that nowhere in the entire book of the Song of Songs is God mentioned. God's name mm -hmm. appears nowhere in the book. And mm -hmm. it surprises people because the traditional reading is that this book is all about God. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I think is interesting as interpreters 
is to so we've got this kind of like the plain sense of the text is about embodied love and then the traditional reading is about allegories in some way or another of God and humankind and so one time one way that you could enter into that conversation is well which should we read it as like should we read it as love poetry or should we read it as allegory mm-hmm. my own kind of take on that has been yes <laughs> That it's really interesting to read it as a story about human embodied love. And there's a lot one can generate from that. And you were mentioning that in the Jewish tradition, it's kind of the, the one biblical text anyway in the Hebrew scripture about that, that is about embodied love. And I think that's true in the Christian tradition as well. But we do have texts in the New Testament that are really nervous about human bodies and human yeah. sexuality. And so in the Christian conversation, in my mind, this text read about human embodied love can be a kind of nice counterbalance to some other texts, Paul and others that are just nervous about like, oh, let's, res- let's restrict sexuality. Mm-hmm. This text is not at all about restriction. It's as we'll see, it's about exploration. Yeah. But yeah. then also to say, but yeah, but we could also still read this as an allegory and then we've got a God who is passionately in love with Israel or the church or the human uh, individual. And like, that's kind of interesting to think about, like, what does that mean? So in my mind, it's let's, let's read it on all the levels kind of at the same, yeah. at the same time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think at some level, it really is just a story about this like incredibly powerful, like magnetic force between two beings, two humans, or if you want to read allegorically, you know, a human and God or a human yeah. community and God. And the the strength of that pull towards each other is, yeah, it, when you're talking about it just being two people, it, it does make religious leaders nervous. <laughs> yeah, Because <laughs> it's very powerful. It's very but powerful. But it, it makes us nervous because we don't know how to talk about sex and sexuality in a religious context. And so this text invites us into a conversation that, we, <laughs> that should make us nervous because we're not practiced at it, most many of us. Yeah, uh, And so that, that nervousness shouldn't turn us away from this text, I think. It should invite us in. So you were mentioning earlier that there are two main characters in this text. There's the, the male who doesn't really have any kind of name. Uh, she mm-hmm. calls him my lover. And then there's a female who is referred to occasionally as the Shulamite, which mm-hmm. just means woman of Jerusalem, I think. Is that, is that it, right? It might mean woman of Jerusalem, or else we don't know what it means. Okay, but, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. So uh, one thing that it seems uh, worth mentioning is that these two characters seem to be quite young. Yeah. And they seem to be not married. Yeah. I mean, you could, you could fight me on this if you want to. But... I always want to fight you, Bobby. <laughs> My favorite example is uh, th- in chapter eight, which we're actually going to talk about next week, but her brothers are reflecting on her and they say, our sister is small and she has no breasts. What are we going to do when people, when, when she has suitors, we're going to barricade her. And then she says, yeah, I'm a city wall and my breasts are the towers. <laughs> right. So they're seeing her as like this little girl. Um, yeah. And she's seen herself as like a fully fledged woman. Yeah. And so it makes me think that there, she's just right at that age where she's coming. Yeah. She's really, own. yeah. She's right at that. Yeah. I was trying to think of like the least sort of, I don't know hokey way to talk about it but she is at that like what you would call the blossoming point or you know whatever like she is her body is changing from a child's body to a woman's body yeah and we get to see little snippets of that described the reason that i said these characters are unmarried is just that when the female character encounters him 
Uh, at one point, she says, I wish you were like my brother so I could find you in the street and kiss you and no one would shame me for it. Yeah. Which suggests that there's something about their relationship that means they're not supposed to be seen with one yeah, another. Yeah, this is secret love. Yeah. It's all the more exciting. And he's always, like, outside her house, like, peering through the lattice gates and, like, like throwing rocks at her window and, like, climbing yeah. up the trellis, you know? Um, and I'm, like, if they were married, he would just, like, walk in the door, yeah. you know, like, I know, Hi, honey, that I'm fun's home. over. Now yeah. you're old and married. In the Christian, in more conservative Christian traditions, this is sometimes read as the love of a... Uh, a husband and wife, which still captures some of the like joy of sex parts of this book. Mm -hmm. But I think that removing that sort of thinking about, well, maybe this isn't about marriage, then sort of lets us focus on, well, what it really is doing is it's celebrating human sexuality kind of in itself. Can you talk about um, the male character in here, the male lover? Yeah. And this association with Solomon? There is a character in here who is sometimes referred to as the king. Yeah. And so there has been some discussion about whether there's another character who is a king who is in this text and whether that's Solomon. In my own reading, the king is just a way that the female speaker kind of flirts with her young male companion. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're my Mm -hmm. king. Yeah. And he calls her, you know, like my dove and my sister and my bride. Mm -hmm. So... This is a traditional association, and I think we might have mentioned at one point along the way that Hebrew tradition, uh, the Jewish tradition, says that Solomon wrote this book when he was quite young and in love, and then he wrote yeah. Proverbs when he was middle-aged and wise, and then he wrote Ecclesiastes when he was old and <laughs> <laughs> old and embittered. Um, <laughs> so probably there's not any historical reliability yeah. to any of that, but it's but it's a good tradition. Yeah. Okay, so today we're going to read... Chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 6. So I'll begin with 1, 12. I'm reading in the Common English Bible today. With my king close by, my perfume filled the air. A sachet of myrrh is my love to me, lying all night between my breasts. A cluster of henna flowers is my love to me, in the desert gardens of Engedi. Look at you, so beautiful, my dearest. Look at you, so beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Look at you, so beautiful, my love. Yes, delightful. Yes, our bed is lush and green. The ceiling of our chambers are cedars, our rafters, cypresses. What's going on in this scene, Amy? So this this scene starts in the woman's voice, the way I read it. Yeah. And she's describing her her lover laying down and then is is focused first on the sense of smell. Like there's this real focus on like her perfume. Yeah. And then him as also a like beautifully smelling thing lodged yeah. between her breasts. And then it goes on in the JPS it says in verse 14, my beloved to me is a spray of henna blooms from the vineyards of Ain Getty. And vineyards of Ain Getty lie a little bit in parallel to to breasts. Yeah. It's poetry. Um which suggests that probably she's not really talking about vineyards. And so it, it um, so it's it's describing in a very sensual way the way that their sort of bodies are together. I love the way you describe that. You, the Song of Songs does this. It's working on these two kind of levels at the same time. There's a, there's a double entendre that kind mm-hmm. of goes throughout this. So one can read this as she's lying in bed. There's perfume and there's myrrh. She's wearing like a little satchel of myrrh around her neck. And it's just very kind of straightforward description of like the way her body is perfumed. 
But mm-hmm. that line that you're pointing to, a sachet of myrrh is my lover to me. The little satchel of myrrh now has, it is her lover. And so he is lying between her breasts in the night. And so there's this, you kind of have this sense of like, wait, what is, are they talking about? What are they talking about yeah. exactly? Yeah. Yeah. And Which is why when you ask the question, what is happening here? I like had this big pause because the poetry is, yes, it's intentionally pointing in different directions and it's suggestive and yeah. it gestures towards things, but it's intentionally leaves it at that. Yeah. You know, the way I say it in my book is uh, the song of songs will make you blush, but it won't get you arrested. <laughs> By which I mean, <laughs> like it's it's erotic, but it's not explicit. Like it, it it's yeah. withholding, but it's it's suggestive, and so it sort of opens the door for you to think in these kinds of ways. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it's inviting you to think about it in this kind of more erotic way, but it sort of allows you to read it on a more plain sense way if you want it to. So then after this, in verse 15, I I see a change of speaker. I see the woman was speaking. Yeah. And then the male lover is speaking say and praising her, right? You are beautiful, my darling. Your eyes are like doves. Yeah. And then the way I read it, it switches back. She says to him, and you are handsome. You are beautiful. That's the way I read it, too. So he's he has commented on her beauty, and then she responds by commenting on his beauty. Mm-hmm. I really love that in my, like, I mean, it's, it's so sweet that they're, like, mutually affirming of one another, and they're taking yeah. the time. When he says, you're beautiful, then she says, no, you're beautiful. Like, it's this really kind of uplifting, encouraging, empowering, or something. I don't know exactly. Yeah, no, it re- it is. It absolutely is. Now, then she goes on to say, our bed is lush and green. The ceilings of our chamber are cedars, our rafters cypresses. We had kind of been led to believe in 12 to 14, like that scene, like he's on, the king is on my couch, right? Mm -hmm. Sounded like we were in some kind of royal bedroom, but it turns out that we're actually outdoors. Is that how, is that how you read it? Yeah, that's how, that's how I read it. I mean, I really see this couple as sort of having all these rendezvous like out in the fields, like in this beautiful, beautiful spring scene in Israel, you know, and finding finding secret little places they can tuck away and be together. Yeah. But yeah, they're young. They don't have a house. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. They are outdoor. They are outdoor enthusiasts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So moving on to chapter two. I'm a rose of the Sharon Plain, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorn bushes, so is my dearest among the young women. Like an apple tree among the wild trees, so is my lover among the young men. In his shade I take pleasure in sitting, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He has brought me to the house of wine, his banner raised over me is love. Sustain me with raisin cakes, strengthen me with apples, for I am weak with love. His left arm is beneath my head, his right embraces me. What do you notice in here that's, that stands out to you? One thing that stands out to me is that, you know, again, it starts in the the voice of the woman, and she's making a proclamation about herself as a, a beautiful thing in the world. Yeah. You know, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys, which is, to me, not just a flower, but like the epitome of the blossoming flowers. Yeah. Like Sharon is a coastal area. And then you also have the valley. I have this like image of like wild flowers going and growing in the cracks of a rock. 
Like, she's not just saying that she's pretty. She's saying, as you mentioned before, that, like, she is metaphorically blooming, right? She is coming into her womanhood, and she is proud of that. Yeah. And then in the next line, her lover responds and affirms all of it, right? Affirms and expands on what she has just said about herself. And I think that's such a beautiful and, like, rare thing in our own culture. Yeah. You know, to sort of, like, feel that pride in your body and then have it affirmed and expanded on by your lover. You don't have to wait for someone else to tell you you look good. Yeah. (laughs) That's really beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. So in, in the first part we were reading, it was just kind of back and forth. But you're exactly right. Here, it's her kind of starting out by claiming... And him feeling it for herself. Yeah, yeah, for herself. And then him amplifying. I yeah. I had not yeah. noticed I hadn't really noticed it that way. And I, I think that's a really beautiful reading. What stands out to you? In the next part in verses three and four, we get this kind of double entendre again. She's talking about him as being a, like an apple tree among the wild mm-hmm. trees. Mm-hmm. But then uh, sh- she takes sh- uh, pleasure in, in his shade and in tasting his fruit. Mm-hmm. There is uh, like that's another one of those things where you can you can sort of read that in different ways depending on how you are inclined. Yeah, in that the the suffix in Hebrew that would be sort of the possessive, like in his shade and ate his fruit, is yeah. the same as it would be for its shade and its fruit. So yeah. whether she's referring to whether she's talking about a tree or whether she's really making that connection to this man. It you know again, Song of Songs can gesture. It's a really hard book to translate. It is very. I mean, much poetry so. is always hard to translate. But do you remember Bobby when we were taking this? Bobby and I took a Song of Songs class together a million years ago, and one of our well, we had many exercises, I guess, but we would get sections of the text to translate. But it wasn't supposed to be like the most literal translation we could do. It was supposed to be the best translation we could do. So to really try to understand all of the multiple meanings of things and the connotations of different words and try to figure out how to get all of that into English. Yeah. It's incredibly difficult. Speaking of which, you have the bloke bloke translation with you. Mm -hmm. Can you just look at how they translate? So... 2-5 2-5 in the CEB, sustain me with raisin cakes, strengthen me with apples, for I'm weak with love. Can you see what the blokes do at that? Yeah, the blokes. So the translation he's referring to is Ariel and Hannah Bloch. And verse 5 is, let me lie among vine blossoms in a bed of apricots. I am in the fever of love. I remember when I did that translation way back in that class you were talking about, that verb that sustained me. It's not entirely clear what it means. It's, it means something like, like I translated it as, uh, as spread me out. Um, yeah. There, so spread me out among the vine blossoms feels, sounds very different than sustain me with raisin cakes. <laughs> it sure does. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is one of those things so. that it's we're talking about. It's not like I want about. a snack. Yeah, yeah, I know. You picture like the little Debbie cakes. That's, yeah, that's not the right uh, feeling for this text. <laughs> this line I love in verse six his left arm is beneath my head and his right arm embraces me. Like they're just spooning under an apple tree, right? That's <laughs> what, what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now one, there was a child, there was a song I sang as a child that was verse four. Um, he brought me, hear this story. he brought me into his banqueting table. His banner over me is love. Brought me into his banqueting table. <laughs> Fan over me is love. 
He brought me into his banqueting table. His banner over me is love. His banner over me is love. <laughs> you thought it was going to get more interesting. Huh? That's beautiful. But it didn't. Yeah. But uh, then it occurred to me one day that I don't know what that means. His banner over me is love. Yeah. What, did, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's my, here's my best guess. Or how I read it anyway. I read it as like uh, his his claim, like a ban- having a banner over you is like identifying strongly with it or someone having a claim to you. Yeah. Right? So his his claim over me is love. I think that's right. Now you I can can't t- stop thinking, wait, of the next verse of, of your song that's like, lay me out in the vine blossoms. <laughs> 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 Yeah, we never sang that one. No, that's, that's probably good. Yeah, that's the, that's presby- the grown-up my version. My childhood Presbyterian <laughs> church. Yeah, so I mean, so but what you're pointing out, hilariously, I think is is important <laughs> because when we sang that song, we the he in that patriarchal language that we were using was God, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this can be and has been read in this kind of really, I think, kind of interesting allegorical way, like. To think about God is willing to like hang a banner over us and say like, I will fight for them. The creator of the universe loves you so intimately that God will like lie down and like hold you while you're sleeping in this kind of divine spoon. Like that, there's some really, that's really beautiful. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And especially like given all the places in the biblical text where I feel like this metaphor of a romantic relationship, you know, sort of romantic relationship between God and Israel, like, goes way wrong. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> you know, like, goes way wrong. Here it's going right, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. And if, you, if you're reading this allegorically also, you know, the usual way of reading the allegory is that God is the male character and humankind is the female character. And so yeah. going all the way back to what you were saying at the beginning about the woman saying, I'm amazing, aren't I? And yeah. then the the male character saying, yes, you are. Yeah, you are. If you read that in the allegory, that's us saying, I'm amazing, aren't I? And God saying, yeah, you are. Which, at least in the Christian tradition, yeah. is not often the way that that gets framed. We, You know, the, yeah. in the Christian tradition, anyway, we often approach God saying, I'm pretty terrible, aren't I? And God says, yes, you are, but it's okay. Yeah. Which is kind of, I mean, it's that's nice in its own way. But yeah, this it is, is nice in its own way, but this is, yeah, you're right. This is a much more sort of, like, confident stance. Yeah. So moving on to 7, 1 to 6 in the Common English Bible, this is in the voice of the male character. How graceful are your sandaled feet, willing woman, the smooth curves of your thighs like fine jewelry, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel cupped like the full moon, may it never lack spiced wine. Your belly is a mound of winnowed wheat edged with lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle doe. Your neck like a tower of ivory, your eyes pools in Heshbon, by the gate of that lordly city. Your profile is like the Tower of Lebanon, looking out toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and your hair braided in royal purple. A king is bound by the tresses. You are so beautiful, so lovely, my love, delightful one. I was kind of hoping you'd read the NRSV because the translation's so much weirder. Can you just say a little bit about what, like, a couple of examples of what was in the NRSV that you thought was 
Well, I don't have the NRSV. I have the GPS that has some some weird things. Can you just tell, like, give an example of what you're looking at? Sure. So whereas yours had your your profile is like the yeah. Tower of Lebanon, mine has your nose like the Lebanon Tower. Yeah. And then the description of her hair, I guess. The head upon you is like crimson wool. The locks of your head are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. Like you picture this little dude stuck in her <laughs> wiry, woolly, purple hair. Yeah. I think your point is well made. Like the imagery is strange to us. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you tried these lines out on somebody in a modern times, <laughs> you would probably not have your a great Your belly's hey. like a heap of wheat, baby. <laughs> <laughs> your nose is like a Tower of Lebanon. Like, these are not things <laughs> that are going to score you points. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I, you know, one can sort of puzzle through, and people have sort of puzzled through what all the images are exactly trying to. But it's almost beside the point, right? I think so. I mean, so what this poem is doing, it's the male character describing just the body of his female companion. Mm-hmm. Starts at her sandaled feet and then goes to thighs, navel. He's like moving up her body toward her head. There's a word for this. When a body is described, it could be either from the top down or from the body up in this sort of like, you know, loving and appreciative language. Is, uh, it's called a wasif. Yeah, the Watsif normally, it's a form of Arabic poetry, is that right? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. But it's so interesting to me in the way that it just, like, it lingers mm-hmm. over the body. But it's not a, a, it's not a sort of objectifying linger, in my mind. It's sort of, it's an, ad, an admiring linger. And I, like, I really love these poems, because I feel like so often in our culture, you know, we either sort of are embarrassed about bodies or we sexualize bodies and try to sell things with them. (laughs) Um, And here we just have like, wow, like your body is really beautiful. And like, let me linger over your eyes and over your nose and over your mouth. And, uh, you know, right. And it opens in my mind, it opens the space of appreciating the human form. Yeah. Just for its like, just for its beauty. For its beauty and its marvel and its, grandeur and dignity and yeah. yeah yeah all of those things and there are examples in the song of songs too where the female describes the male's body we didn't choose mm-hmm. one of those for our mm-hmm. reading but this is like there's a mutuality of the admiration in the yes. book as a whole as well which i think is important i really appreciate that you describe this poem as as a way to appreciate the body without objectifying it mm-hmm. so this is a section of the biblical text where the Hebrew tradition and then the Septuagint tradition divide chapter and verse differently. So chapter 6, verse 13 in my translation is 7-1 yes, connected is to this seven one. yes, in the GPS Can you read that for us? Yeah. Turn back, turn back, O maid of Shulam. Turn back, turn back, that we may gaze upon you. Why will you gaze at the Shulamite in the Mahanaim dance? Was that perfectly clear? You understand everything? <laughs> yeah, I was it's a really totally weird verse <laughs> <laughs> that we can, um, you know, we can talk about in, in different kinds of ways. But I will say, I will say at least this: the presence of the word "we" there, that we may gaze upon you, mm. 
made me uncomfortable, made me feel like, whereas there had been this sense of mutuality and dignity and respect and their appreciation of each other's bodies, as soon as there was a, we may gaze upon you, I just personally started having this reaction of like, wait, who is we that's gazing at at this woman? That's interesting. The Bloch translation of it suggests that this is a group of women and they're like dancing, like they're sort of picturing like it's like a bar mitzvah party or a wedding where the group splits into two and one person dances down the aisle between and her friends are like, go Shuli, it's your birthday, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you yeah. know, and like celebrating her. Right. And then to have a sort of wasif after that is like, who is offering this? Is it the group of women or is it the lover? I don't know. Maybe I just like it better with the Septuagint. Yeah. Just holding that wasp separate. But that it was interesting to me almost more as like my own reflection, how much my sense of that, of whether we're objectifying or appreciating, changed when it went to the idea of one person, of, yeah. of like a couple in private versus a we are gazing at this woman. No, that really does. I, I'd have to think through what to do with that. It does change things for sure. I mean, she doesn't seem distressed by it, so... Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, she does not. So, you know, so that's why I say, like, it really is more about, I think it's more about me, because she doesn't, she doesn't seem distressed. I was, I mean, one of the, like, there's something in there, too, just about, like, the way, like, the the admiring of bodies can be a really wonderful, sensitive, compassionate thing, and Mm -hmm. it can also be a really creepy, objectifying thing. Yeah. And the line between those two things can be really thin. Yeah. And here we're kind of right at the beginning, we're right on that line. But that's an important thing to think about too, in terms of like, how do we, like, whose bodies do we admire and how do we do it and with whom do we do it? Like, I think that's an important conversation that we're having. Right. And what is their their sort of consent to this whole thing? How do they feel about it? Because while I might feel uncomfortable with the we, she doesn't seem to feel uncomfortable with it. So, you know, different people. Put that line in different places. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the male voice continues on, picking back up in verse 7. Your stately form resembles a date palm, and your breasts are like clustered fruit. I say, I will climb the palm tree, I will hold its fruit. May your breasts be now like grape clusters, and the scent of your breath like apples. Your palate is like excellent wine. Flowing smoothly for my love, gliding through the lips and teeth, I belong to my lover, and his longing is only for me. Come, my love, let's go out to the field and rest all night among the flowering henna. Let's set out early for the vineyards. We will see if the vines have budded and the blossoms opened. See if the pomegranates have bloomed. There I'll give my loving to you. The mandrakes give off their scent, and at our doorways is every delicacy, fresh or ripened. My love, I have kept them hidden for you. Yeah, so the the speaker goes back and forth in this a little bit, right? It does, yeah. In this section. You mentioned that it starts with the the man speaking. Yes. Right? And he he wants to climb up her, her tree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is one of my favorite lines in the Song of Songs. Because the song, like her poem back in chapter one was so subtle about the eroticism <laughs> of it. You know, like, is that sachet of myrrh really a sachet of myrrh? Or is that something else? Right. And at least in the CEB... Your breasts are like clustered fruit. I will climb the tree. I will hold its fruit. Like, that is such a clumsy <laughs> attempt at, like, double entendre. Like, he just names it. And I feel like that is such a such a lovely thing. If you imagine him as, like, a teenage boy, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. He's like, oh, I see what we're doing here. I totally get it. Trees. Okay. <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh, no. Yeah. Uh, I think she interrupts him in the middle of verse nine. Um, so in this translation, he says, your palate is like excellent wine. And then she says, flowing smoothly for my love, gliding through the lips and teeth. I belong to my mm-hmm. lover and his longing is only for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. One thing that's interesting to me about that is that she kind of interrupts him there in verse nine. And then she speaks all the way through the end of that. <laughs> She's like, okay, enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what, so what, do you, do you make anything of that? Like he's, he is waxing eloquent and she, <laughs> she steps in there and finishes. Well, and, and she steps in there a way that's sort of like, okay, let's, let's go do this thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, she's like, okay, let's go. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go find a, find a place to be together. Come, my love. Let's go to the field. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, he offers this whole wasif and then he like offers his summary of the wasif, right? So <laughs> yeah. like he's described a whole body and then he says how beautiful you are, your stately form. I'm going to climb your magnificent tree. But yeah, there is a certain point where she's like, enough talk. Yeah. You know, let's let's go and actually be together. Yeah. Just pretty like, it's a pretty empowered stance. It really is. One of the things that I l- really like about that is, you know, you can see him as a little awkward or a little shy here, but you can also read him just at, like, there's a sort of, he is expressing his desire but mm-hmm. he is waiting for an invitation. Oh, I like that. He's not forcing her into the field or like assuming she wants to go or mm-hmm. anything like that. So he sort of, he sets the stage, but he leaves it to her to say, yeah, like there's a, there's actually a consent demonstrated here. I like your, I really like your reading. And I like the suggestion that he's, he is holding space and taking time to allow her to, you know, to take the lead. On yeah. any kind of like physical relationship that they're going to have. And she does. Yeah. When she's ready. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. So we've and gestured along the way to some kinds of connections with contemporary life, but I'm really interested as you sort of reflect on this passage as a whole or parts of it, what do you see as the connections between this ancient text and contemporary life? Gosh, Bobby, this is one of those great conversations we've had where I had thought before we started <laughs> about yeah. what I would want to say at this point. Yeah. And now my head's in a really different place. Yeah. And I, I think I need to go with sort of where, where we ended up, which is holding, like holding space for thinking about what is the difference between appreciating the human form and appreciating the body of someone that you have this incredibly strong draw to. Yeah. And objectifying that person and seeing them only as a body that you are drawn to. Yeah. And I don't know if it's if it's a matter of, you know, the the woman in this text, the female voice feels good about herself and will claim her strength and beauty very openly, and the male voice is affirming and expanding that. Yeah. If that makes it feel good and okay or if it's that most of this conversation seems to be private and that makes it feel good and okay. Yeah. But I think this is a hugely important question for us because I feel like our our communities tend to go back and forth between super like hypersexualizing and yes. objectifying women or or and simultaneously 
pushing this whole conversation underground because yeah. we don't know how to do it in a respectful way. And so it, it gets so sort it gets so extreme that we don't know how to handle it. And so we don't want to talk about it at all. Yeah. Americans like to do that. We like to push things to extremes and then push them out of out of the conversations that happen in church and synagogue, even though they're they're all over our culture. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't I don't have a, a very hard conclusion to put on that other than this text is evidence to me that it is possible. It is possible to appreciate the details of the human form and how powerful they are and how beautiful and strong they are without moving into that place of objectification. But it is a really fine line. No, I think that's right. It's so interesting to talk about this text from 2,500 years ago as modeling ways that we might, as a contemporary people, talk more For positively real. about sex and sexuality. But I really think that that's a good way of reading this text. And the fact that it's a biblical text, which has canonical status in both the Jewish and Christian communities, to say, like, this, this text deserves a voice in the conversation that our communities have about sex and sexuality. and we should be finding ways of inviting people into a constructive conversation that raises questions for sure, mm-hmm. as this text has done for us, but also enters in with, you know, with a positive view and with an admiration of bodies and with an appreciation for sexuality and with a little bit of a sense of humor about, you know, like we need to be able to laugh <laughs> at like kind of the fumbled attempts. I'm going to climb the tree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I love this text and I think it needs to be read not, you know, not as the only text, but certainly as a text and not as a text that we ought to, you know, like follow at every turn, but as a text that invites a conversation that we don't know how to have. And just paying attention to our own conversation, I noticed that when we started out this conversation, like it took us a minute to like quit laughing, <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. about like, <laughs> like this is a different kind of conversation yeah. for Bible Worm. Yeah. But by the end, you know, once we had sort of like gotten used to the text and we're able, when we're just sort of like really digging into it, like it moved us to some really important conversations. And I, you know, I think this text can do that for our communities as well. I love what we were talking about in terms of like um, invitation and consent. I think that is a hugely important message. The other thing that I love in this text is thinking about that Watsif poem. And, you know, you were commenting on how weird the imagery is. And it really is weird. And these, these kinds of ways of talking about bodies would not work in contemporary culture, which to me, I mean, it's something that it says something to me, which is pretty obvious, I guess. But the beauty standards of, you know, first millennia BCE Israel don't yeah. make any sense to us in 2020 in North America. And which means that, you know, a thousand years from now, our beauty standards aren't going to make any sense to whoever comes after us. Right. Which means the whole thing is made up, right? <laughs> like yeah. the standards of what is beautiful are entirely culturally constructed. And we could choose to think of things as beautiful that are not prescribed that don't as beautiful. fit that construct. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So we could choose to look at one another and whatever our, you know, size or shape or ethnicity or age or ability or all mm-hmm. of the things where right. we draw markers about what is beautiful and not beautiful. And we could simply say, you're beautiful the way that you are. Right. And the fact that we don't do that, I think, says something about the way that we're sort of beholden to cultural constructs of beauty. 
And it's beautifully put. I love that, that we don't, that he, there's no frame of reference to what other people look like in this text, yeah. right? He's looking at this one person's magnificent body and comparing it to various things in the world. Yeah, it's beautiful. Exactly right. We have only just gestured toward the allegorical reading today. And I think there are other things that one might be able to do with an allegorical reading. But I think next week's passage is much more kind of invitational toward discussing an allegorical passage. So I think we'll probably spend a little more time spend on that a little more time next there. Yeah. week. But I think mm-hmm. just spending, spending some time thinking about sex and sexuality and body positivity and consent is well worth the time um, for this week. So next week, we're continuing on in Song of Songs. We'll be looking at chapters five and eight. And based on today, I'm really looking forward to that conversation. I am too. I love these conversations where I end in a different place than I start. And I can't wait to see what'll come next week. Me too. All right. See you then, Amy. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Bible Worm. Next week, we continue our discussion of Song of Songs, looking at chapters 5 and 8. We hope you'll join us. Until then, keep on digging.